we've been talking about this idea that it's possible for two people to look at the same thing and see something different, right? I might have mentioned babies with something to do with that a few weeks ago, but we're, we're, we're not going to talk about that this morning. Um, but the reality is two people can look at the same thing and see something completely different. I am like a bit of a mad um, sports fan. And I can watch pretty much anything so long as it's competitive. I have been known in uh, a prior life when I didn't have quite as much going on to actually watch bowls and enjoy it. I know, I know, I know, I know, it's crazy. But just about anything that's competitive, Dana and I have a running argument in our house that darts is not a sport. Um, I'll let you guys argue that this afternoon. But I grew up playing rugby. That's kind of my, uh, as far as sports go, that's one of, one of my passions. And um, some of you will know the ex-all-black captain called Richie McCaw, right? He's just about one of the greatest rugby players to ever play the game. He captained New Zealand to uh, win two World Cups. And there's a brilliant documentary on his kind of life and the journey of the all-blacks rugby team. But one of the things they talk about in the documentary is this journey the, the New Zealand rugby team went on over the last kind of 15 years from like being chronic chokers, like every single time they would get to a really, really important game, usually in a World Cup, they would go into the World Cup as the favorites, they would go into the World Cup as the number one team in the world, and usually some point between quarterfinal and final, they had this complete implosion. And everyone that expected them to win, they would, it would all end in tears. And he talks about beginning to work with this, the whole team beginning to work with this psychologist. And he talks about how they went in this transition from learning to see differently. They used to see uh, pressure and challenge and the really, really high consequence matches. They would feel intimidated by them. And they would feel the pressure of a nation on their shoulders. And usually that affected the, all of their performance and then they would lose. And he talked about this journey. They went on with a psychologist where they learned how to see challenge and expectation as an invitation to test themselves. That rather than seeing this huge moment as something to be nervous or fearful of, they actually learned how to use it to fuel a desire to see how they would cope under that kind of pressure. I think it's interesting. A few days till the World Cup starts, and we'll all lament the fact that Northern Ireland aren't there. But you know what it's like in history of Irish and Northern Irish sports, right? When it particularly, I mean, it is changing in rugby circles, but um, when I was growing up, certainly, whenever Ireland played a really good team, there was this heart thing going on of, like, I really hope they win, and this head thing going on of, I really hope we're not embarrassed, right? Like, that's, that's kind of what was going on. And that's really common, actually, if you pay attention to the language of elite athletes all over the world. They have learned how to see pressure and challenge as an invitation rather than be intimidated by it. See, the reality is we can see two things exactly the same and see them very differently. Two different people. Look at a situation, one person feels like, oh my goodness, I need to hide, and the other person thinks, this is amazing, I can't wait to get involved in that. We have to learn how to see correctly. Two questions that we've been talking about through this series are what are you looking at and what are you looking for? What are you looking at and what are you looking for? 
Have you ever met people that it, it just seems like no matter where they go, they're looking for offense? I don't mean offense, that'd be weird. I mean offense. <laughs> Anyone seen any fences around here? <laughs> you ever met anybody like that? Doesn't matter, doesn't matter what's what's going on or what's said. They just are looking to be offended. Uh, you ever met the opposite? You ever met th- those people? They're kind of annoying, actually, that seem impossible to offend. Like they're just happy and positive about everything. Feels like their entire world could be falling apart, and they're like, ah, it could be worse, you know? Two people can engage with the exact same thing and see something completely different. What are you looking at, and what are you looking for? Are two prayers that, for me, are really, really important. Two of the most important prayers I pray in my life. God, what do you see and what do you say? God, what do you see? God, what do you say? Because the reality is when I engage with my life, often what I see is not what God sees. Often I see problems, I see challenge, I see stress, I see all sorts of stuff. And that's difficult whenever God sees opportunity, right? Because for me, I want to actually go the opposite direction where actually there's this beautiful proverb says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to seek it out. That often in the midst of difficult circumstance, God actually puts things for us. Places things there for us. If we would have eyes to see what he sees, we would actually go digging rather than go running. I didn't write any of that. That's not what I'm trying to talk about. Um, This morning we want to talk about seeing in the dark. And the answer is not carrots. Like learning to see when life is really difficult. Learning to see God when the wheels come off. Learning to see God when everything around you screams of his absence. How do we learn to see in those circumstances? We're going to look at a passage of scripture found in uh, Mark's gospel, chapter 10. Uh, I'm going to read from verse 46. It says this. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and follow Jesus along the road. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is life to us. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and reveal truth. We want to hear from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder what your definition of a bad day is. Like, how would, how would you define a bad day? 
Like maybe at the end of the day when you come home, you get that question. We're doing this thing with our kids at the minute, actually, where we, their twins are four and our daughter's six, and they're really good at monologues, right? Like if you ask them a question, basically they'll keep talking until you tell them to stop. And so we're trying to help them understand that conversation actually requires questions and listening. Like those are really important components, right? So uh, oftentimes now, whenever I get home, I get met with this, sometimes in unison, which is really cute, but often from all three of them, I'll come home and they'll all say, hi, dad. And then they'll go, how was your day? And um, sometimes the answer is great and sometimes the answer is not so good. Uh, But I wonder, how would you define a bad day? Maybe it's like your boss has just come a complete nightmare. Or maybe some of you have some bosses that like, are just notorious for like, being a bit moody. And you know, some days it can be great, and other days it can be terrible. It really depends on their mood. Chris is saying, that's my life. <laughs> um, maybe for some of you, it's like one of those days when the kids have just been like crazy. Like, it just doesn't seem to matter what you do. They, they just want to do the opposite, and they're just absolutely out of control. And you get to the end of the day, and you're like, I just need this day to end. Maybe some of you, it's whenever you find out that your mother-in-law is coming for dinner. You're like, this day was going great until <laughs> some of you are laughing, and that's dangerous with that joke. Some of you younger folk, maybe it's like triple period of maths or something like that. You're like, oh, Wednesday. The truth is, for some of you, a bad day would be a break. That actually you're living through a bad month or a bad quarter, bad year. Some of you, if you're really honest, would maybe even say, do you know, Wendy, it's been a bad life and it feels like I've just bounced from crises to crises, from chaos to chaos and a bad day would be a welcome a welcome relief. At the center of this story is a man who I think by any of our standards is having that. It's a pretty rough life. Bartimaeus in this story I think would probably find a bad day a relief. He's blind, he's unemployed, and he spends his days on the streets living off whatever scraps of generosity people will throw his way. And this short account of Bartimaeus is full of stuff I think we can learn about seeing God on our difficult days or in challenging seasons of our life. I want to keep this really simple this morning and give you uh, five principles I think we can pull out of here. Don't worry, they're short. When you're going through a difficult season, how should we respond and react in order to see Jesus in the midst of it? The first thing is this, now is always the best time to call on God. Now is always the best time to cry out to God. I wonder how many of us are waiting for some sort of fuzzy emotion or perfect situation or circumstance. For the stars to kind of align up, for maybe the doubts that you wrestle with daily to go away. And when that happens, you will then cry out or call to God. Verse 46 says this, Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. Jesus is with what is described here as a large crowd. We have no idea how many people this is. Is it 50? Is it 500? Is it 5,000? All we know that is it is big. 
So here's Bartimaeus, right? This guy has zero status in life. Like none. He is literally a blind beggar. He probably has very few friends and most people spend most of their life trying to ignore him. That's Bartimaeus. And a large crowd begins to pass him with Jesus at its center. Bartimaeus has every excuse available to him to say this isn't a good time to call on Jesus. This isn't a good moment. Everything is literally stacked against him. He has a hard time getting normal people's attention on normal days, never mind the famous rabbi who just happens to be surrounded by a crowd of people. I wonder what your excuse is. Maybe it's not a big crowd. It's a busy life. You've just too much going on. Maybe it's stress that you'll pray better when you feel better. Maybe it's that you feel like your life is a million miles away from God. And actually, it would be really hypocritical for you to cry out to him. But maybe if you could get yourself along to church for a few weeks, you'd actually feel like maybe you're in the kind of place where that would actually be appropriate for you. Listen to what the text says. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The moment, the moment he realized it's Jesus at the center of this crowd, despite the fact that it would seem pretty unlikely Jesus would even hear him, he begins to cry out. He begins to shout. The conditions aren't perfect. They aren't ideal. But they are what they are. Now is always the best time to call on God. Whatever is going on around you, whatever excuses are available to you, now is always the best time. Several years ago in my last job, um, I was going through a pretty difficult period of life. We had some pretty huge financial issues in the uh, company I was running. Uh, our twins were in intensive care. We were trying to finish an extension at home and had everything swirling with Lagan Valley Vineyard all at the same time. And uh, I remember uh, this experience of multiple times a day in my office in Belfast. I would like... I was doing everything I could to just not pay attention to all of the problems and things that were swirling around. Just focus on work. But every so often, usually about every half hour or so, it would all come up. And I would get this kind of surge of anxiety and fear and stress. And I had two kind of choices. There's probably loads of choices, but I simplified it to two. One, just try to ignore it and keep working. Which, if you've ever been there, that doesn't work. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Or the other was, I could cry out to God. And so I'm in an office that was a bit inappropriate. So I decided to make the toilet my prayer closet. And I'm quite convinced all my colleagues thought I had a fairly major health issue. Because just about every half an hour, I was going and locking myself in the toilet. I want to be really uh, vulnerable with you this morning. I want to teach you my dark days prayer. What I went in there and prayed. I used to get up and I'd go and I'd I'd lock the door and then I'd close my eyes and I would pray some sort of version of this prayer. Help! 
Sometimes not screaming just quite that loud, because then everyone would definitely know I have a health issue. Imagine that, coming out of the work toilet. <laughs> like, I don't think I want to help. Sometimes we think we need theology or poetry or the most beautifully crafted, articulated prayer when God just cares what's happening in our hearts. And sometimes the best prayer for you to ever pray is simply, God, help. I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else to do. I need your help. Don't wait for what seem like the perfect conditions to call on God. Just call. Just call. Second thing I want you to notice from Bartimaeus' story, concentrate on what you have, not what you don't. That's like just life coaching, by the way. If you're not sure yet, we think about Jesus and the Bible and all that sort of stuff. That'll do for this week for you. Just concentrate on what you have, not what you don't. Some of us never see Jesus in difficult seasons because all we see are our problems and our struggles. And we can get so focused on what's missing that we completely miss what's present. We can be so focused on what's missing, we completely miss what's present. This blind beggar could have been so focused on the fact that he doesn't know anybody and he can't see and he has no access Like if anybody has an excuse to say, I'm out, God, I I don't know what. Like, I mean, sure, I'm up for talking to Jesus, but I'm blind, I have no friends, and I'm on the edge of the crowd. What do you want from me? Bartimaeus has two things that I can see in this story. He has the ability to hear and the ability to speak. Like you know you're having a rough day when that's the best of it for you. Like that's all you've got. You can hear and you can speak. Verse 47 says, When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout. He didn't begin to think, Oh, that's Jesus. If only I wasn't blind or if only I had some friends or if only I could get up. If only, I, if only somebody would say, Jesus cares about blind people. Hey, get the blind guy. Bring him over here. It just says, Whenever he heard it was Jesus, he began to shout. It was impossible at this stage for this man to see Jesus. It was impossible for him to get to Jesus. So he just hears and begins to shout. Verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's just sitting against a wall somewhere, being ignored by everyone, and then he starts to shout. You ever been in like an awkward moment? They're really, really uncomfortable. My wife gets cross with me because sometimes I accidentally create awkward moments. I promise I don't try, but just sometimes it happens. Um, this has got to have been really awkward, right? Like there's this like parade, this like Jesus parade is happening. And all these people are swirling around them. And then this nobody over here, starts making a fool of himself. Like he starts this commotion. Like you can be pretty sure he wasn't like, hey, Jesus, I'd like your mercy. Like he is desperate. And he's screaming, Jesus, have 
mercy on me. He used all that he had to get hold of Jesus. We need to learn how to focus not on what's missing, but on what's present. What would it look like for you to leverage whatever it is that is in your hands right now to connect to God? Listen, I know there are lots of things that would help you if they were present with you, but if they're not, just use what you have. Just use what you have. Now is always the best time to call on God. Concentrate on what you have, not on what you don't. The third thing, this is so important for us here in Northern Ireland. Third thing is this. Don't be swayed or intimidated by the opinions of others. Don't be swayed or intimidated by the opinions of others. Bartimaeus creates a commotion. It's awkward and it's embarrassing. He's making a fool of himself. Verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Blind Bartimaeus is on the side of the road screaming his head off. And those that are gathered around Jesus are going, would you ever shut up? Like that's, that's weird, that's awkward, that's embarrassing. Would you get a grip of yourself? You must be mad if you think your problems matter to God, Bartimaeus. Don't you see? Like we're caught up in the unfolding of the mission of God here on earth. This guy's the flipping Messiah. Everywhere he goes, the religious elite are confronted and there are miracles and there's all sorts of things happening. He's calling people to follow him. We're in the middle of that. Do you really think he's got time for a nobody like you? Just shut up, Bartimaeus. I wonder if you ever felt that way, that your problems are just not important to God. He's God, right? There are more people in slavery today than at any other point in human history. That's a pretty big item on the agenda. Thousands of children die every day from starvation. It's a pretty major problem. Why would God care about the issue you're having at work? Why would God care about the diagnosis that's hanging over you or someone that you love right now? And just like this crowd, when we begin to pay attention to the things that are going wrong in our lives, the enemy of God comes and tells us to shut up. God doesn't care about that detail of your life. God doesn't care about that thing going on in your family. It's got way more important things to do. The scriptures say that God has loved us with an everlasting love. That he knew us before we were born. And that he sent Jesus for every single one of us. Make no mistake, God cares passionately about the detail in your life. And ending slavery and childhood starvation. He's God, he can do that. But don't for a second ever think he doesn't care about the details of your life. 
the dream of that new business that would create revenue and employ people. The dysfunction in your marriage, finding health and wholeness so that you can bring that to the community around you. Your kid's illness being healed, demonstrating the presence of his kingdom here on earth right now. Don't ever think God doesn't care about the detail in your life. God cares about you. That is simply the truth. So the crowd are doing everything they can to shut Bartimaeus up. So what does he do? It says, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. If, if that's us, right? Say, like, oh, sorry, I didn't want to offend. Sorry, I thought it was Jesus. And, but, you know, okay, that makes you uncomfortable. No problem, I'll just continue begging away over here. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. He is doing everything he can to connect with Jesus. And those around him are doing everything they can to get in the way. So he tries all the harder. He doesn't push the brakes, he pushes the accelerator. The challenge for many of us is that we stop at the first obstacle. The moment when we feel like giving up is the most important moment that we shout all the louder. You ever have a moment like that? Where like you've decided, right, I'm going to call on God. Right, I'm going to sort my life out. Right, I'm going to try and engage with Jesus. And it seems for some weird, crazy reason that almost the exact same moment that you decide to move towards God, all this stuff moves towards you. That's not helpful. Just me? Like the moment we decide to move forward, all of this doubt appears. You get an email of something crazy that's going on. It just seems to be one of those days when your wife's gone a bit mad. Sorry, love. (laughs) And we determine ourselves to move towards Jesus. And in that moment, opposition seems to intensify. And we think, sorry, I'm out. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to stop. The moment when we feel most like giving up is the moment we must learn to shout all the louder, to refuse to sit down, to refuse to shut up, to shout all the louder. Bartimaeus pushes through the opposition of others and look what happens. Verse 49, Jesus stops and says, call him. So they call to the blind man, cheer up on your feet He's calling you. Just pay attention to the language there. Imagine the state of Bartimaeus that the first thing they say is cheer up. This isn't somebody sitting at the side of the road simply going, hey Jesus, see me. These are the cries of desperation. Cheer up. On your feet. He's calling you. Don't give up because it's hard. Don't give up because it's not popular. Don't be swayed or intimidated by the opinions of others. Because now is always the best time to call on God. Pay attention to what you have, not what you don't. And the fourth lesson is this. Jesus hears the cries of desperate people. Jesus hears 
cries of desperate people. He stops and says, call him. You need to understand that in this moment, Jesus is one of the most famous people in the city and in the nation. This is the man that's wandering the countryside, healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, feeding thousands with just a few fish and a few loaves. And there are even rumors that he can raise the dead flying around. He's teaching people about things they've never heard before. He's challenging the religious elite. He is bringing an entirely new perspective and understanding of what God is actually like and what his unfolding plan in the world and the universe actually looks like. And everywhere he goes, there's controversy. And everywhere he goes, thousands are drawn to him. And so he's leaving the city surrounded by a huge crowd. Kids are running everywhere. People are sharing stories. How long have you been following him? I saw him do this crazy thing yesterday. I heard that he raised some guy. Heard? I was there. I saw. This is what's happening. And in the distance, on the periphery, right on the edge, is this blind beggar crying desperately out to God. And he stops and says, I heard something. I heard someone. Call him to me. In the middle of all the noise, in the middle of slavery in the world and childhood poverty and starvation. God hears the cries of desperate people just like you and just like me. He sees the tears that you cry in the middle of the night. He sees the pain that you hide in your heart. even loves you when your phone rings in church. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop seeking. Because Jesus hears. The passage goes on to say that they call to the man. And I love this. The very people that were telling him to shut up are the people that to cheer up and come. Only God turns opposition into invitation. Where the things that oppose us become the things that invite us. The things that get in the way become the invitation to come. So they call to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. James, why don't you guys come back up? Verse 50 Throwing his cloak aside, he jumps to his feet and comes to Jesus. That's not a minor detail. This is really important that you catch this. So the authorities in the city, right, were really concerned with people that would be trying to cheat others out of their money, posing as beggars. Imposters. And so the way you knew if someone was a legitimate down and out, just think about this. The way you figured out if somebody was legitimately absent of anything else, you got a cloak. And the cloak was the symbol that you had no other way of making money other than begging. 
Bartimaeus' whole identity is wrapped up in this cloak. It's the thing that says he is a legitimate beggar, blind with nothing. And one word from Jesus, and he throws it away. One word from Jesus, and he realizes a whole new identity and destiny is available to him. And he takes the thing that has labeled him nothing and chucks it away and runs towards Jesus. Scholars reckon that the cloak was, other than whatever rags he was wearing, the cloak was most likely his only other possession in the world. And he throws it away and comes to Jesus. Verse 50, throwing his cloak aside, he jumps to his feet and goes to Jesus. And verse 51, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? She eventually makes it towards Jesus. And Jesus looks him in the eyes, or eyelids. I'm not sure whether his eyes were open. (laughs) And says, what do you want me to do for you? If I'm there, most likely, it's not recorded, but from the other information we have on Peter, you can just imagine Jesus' lovely disciple Peter going, I'm not sure you understand Jesus. He's blind. Like, sorry, I know it's busy, Lord, and there's like people everywhere, and this is a bit of a crazy moment. He's a blind beggar. I'm sure he wants to see. You see, something happens to us and in us when God asks us that question. What do you want from me? Can you imagine if he was from here? Can you imagine if he was from Northern Ireland? What do you want from me, Bartimaeus? Oh, Jesus, I'm not too bad, actually. I don't even know how I've got here. Like somebody stopped and grabbed me and threw me in front of you and... You know, like, I don't want to waste any of your time. You're Jesus, and you're really important. And, you know, I'm sure you have way more important things to do than be talking to little old me. But, you know, I have this weak problem with my eyes. And you're Jesus, so, no, but, like, just open one of them. Like, just even one would be, like, such a brilliant thing. I don't even need both of them open. Just, just give me a little bit of whatever you have, but no trouble. And if it's too much trouble, don't even worry. Keep walking. I'll be fine. Isn't that what we do? And we long for God to move in our lives. And the minute he shows up, we die for cover. And he stands in front of us saying, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? And Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, I want to see. Rabbi, I want to see. You imagine if God was so good like if he was so good you knew that when he asked you that question you could answer it honestly with no fear of disappointment no fear of being let down but just able to say God this is what I want this is what I need this is what I long for text finishes with Jesus speaking to Bartimaeus saying go, I love this go your faith has healed you notice he didn't say come right 
He says, go. You're free. And it says, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. What I love about this is we think that breakthrough in our lives is dependent upon our willingness to become a Christian or follow Jesus. We see something of the Father's heart revealed in this text that is so profound. He doesn't say, you're healed, now come follow me. He just says, go. You're free. And of course, in that moment, Bartimaeus is like, where else would I go? we see a revelation in this text of the overwhelming offensive outrageous love of almighty God that he would do things for you with no strings attached isn't that real love that he would move on your behalf with no deal required isn't it the opposite of how we behave God, if you do this, this, and this, I promise I'll follow you forever. God, if you'll move in this way, then I'll go to church every day for the rest of my life. God, if if you do this, I'll pray every morning. I'll tell everyone about Jesus. God, if you do this, then I'll do this. And we see here Jesus going, go, you're free. No strings attached. No deal required. I love you that much. I wonder what you would say. Jesus in front of you saying, what do you want from me? What do you want from me?